Hi, my name is Emily, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 61, 1 through 4. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Shelby. The New Testament reading is found in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Carly. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 17, 6 through 10. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that in everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place and in our hearts to work in us, Lord. Open our eyes that we would see Jesus this morning and open our ears that we would hear your voice this morning. God, open our hearts that we would love you and serve you and follow you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. We're starting a short new series today um, called The Language of Prayer. Now, be honest with me. When I say the word prayer, what comes to mind? I mean, probably for some of us, the first thing, the first feeling we feel when you hear the word prayer is intimidation. Like, oh, no, I don't know how to do that. That's for like the 401 Christians. I'm like 101. I don't know how to do that stuff. That just seems above me. I, I, I or maybe not intimidation, but maybe for some of you, it's guilt. Because if there's one thing we know we're supposed to do, it's pray. And if there's one thing it's hard to do for many of us, it's pray. And so when you hear, oh no, a series on prayer, you're like, uh-oh, I'm just going to feel guilty again. Could you not tarry with me for one hour? You know. Or maybe not intimidation, maybe, not, maybe for others of you, if we're really honest, deep down inside, when you hear the word prayer, you think... I kind of feel a little bit like it's pointless. Like, can we go back to that Ecclesiastes thing? Because I just don't know that it matters. In fact, I feel like, eh, I could, I could not. Does it? And then maybe to sort of compound our already complex feelings about prayer, what, the things we've been told about prayer in church don't seem to be all that helpful. 
So on the one hand, we have the standard message that you hear about prayer in a lot of non-denominational churches, which is, hey man, prayer is just talking to God. So just like tell him whatever's in your heart, dude, like you would with your best friend. Like Jesus is my homeboy, you know? Like, oh cool, man, yeah, I'll just do that. And you're kind of, and at first it's so pure and it's fresh and it's beautiful and it's innocent and it's raw. And then after a while you're like, I keep telling Jesus what's in my heart, but if I'm honest, there's stuff in my heart that's really selfish. And it turns out that our native language, our mother tongue, is selfishness. And so if we only pray out of the reserves of our own heart, we quickly run out of supply. On the other hand, maybe from denominational traditions, what we've been given is these set prayers. And so we're like, oh, these set prayers, that's the way to pray. Don't you dare make up words on your own. Because some really smart and really holy people wrote down some prayers and you should just pray those words. It's like, okay, okay. And we're like, you pray those words and at first maybe it's like really beautiful and really cool. And then after a while you're like, yeah, but it's not me. Like it doesn't actually resonate with my heart and the depth of my soul. And so we're, we're stuck feeling this inadequacy when it comes to prayer. Knowing that we should, not knowing how, not quite wanting formulas, but not wanting to be left to our own devices, what do we do? If prayer works like a language, then we learn a language by speaking back what was spoken to us, right? Children learn to speak by being spoken to. And so parents or crazy uncles and aunties will say, say ball, say mama, say auntie, you know, whatever. And you're like, that's my friend. And you're like, oh my gosh, they said it. You know? <laughs> Not quite, but, and, and you do these, but we know, because we know that you learn to speak by being spoken to. The scriptures we know, we call it God's word. We know it's God's word spoken to us. But the Psalms are that part of scripture, which is God's word spoken to us that we are to speak back to Him. Does that make sense? The Psalms are God's Word speaking to us that we are to speak back to Him. Just in the same way as a toddler would say, mama, mama, ball, milk. We're speaking back these words to Him. The Psalms have been like language school for prayer. Or if you'd like, The language of prayer. They school us in the language of prayer. Now, very obviously, the Psalms were the prayer book of the people of God in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Israel. And so we know this and we think, oh, that's great. But what about Christians? Do Christians use the Psalms? Very early on, Christians began praying the Psalms. Athanasius in the fourth century, which this began even before his time, but here's what he starts to say about it. He says, in the Psalter, in the Psalm book, you learn about yourself. You find depicted in it all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups, its downs, its failures and recoveries. Isn't that beautiful? Athanasius is saying something happens when you begin to pray the Psalms. It gives you a vocabulary for your own, the contours of your own soul, the heights and depths of it. Benedict would develop a rule for praying the Psalms. And for some of these monks, they would pray all 150 Psalms in one week. And you're like, oh man, that's the professionals, man. Like, I can't do that. Later on, it's funny, later on, Cranmer, the English reformer, would develop a way of praying the Psalms that took you through 150 Psalms in a month. And you're like, okay, well, that's better. I can maybe get there. 
But, but maybe there's this nagging voice in your head that's like, well, I, is this for everybody or is this for like extra credit, you know? <laughs> like, like, should we all do this? You know? So Jerome in the 5th century, another one of the church fathers wrote this. He said, farmers are to pray the Psalms while they plow their fields and workmen as they work their shops. Isn't that amazing? Jerome didn't think this should be a practice just for the holy monastics or the desert fathers. He thought, man, everybody should do it while you work. And I sometimes think that in our new, we kind of have a new monastic prayer movement, you know, and, and there's many beautiful things about it. But sometimes there's, there's this unintended message that basically says, hey, look, hey, hey, man, if you can't pray 24-7, then just don't even pray, you know. Like, don't, if you can't commit to, like, hours every day, or if you can't, and, and I don't think anybody actually says that. I think that's what we sort of internalize, and so we say, well, I, I can't do that then. But I love the heart that Jerome is, is conveying. Is he's saying, dude, wherever you can do it, pray. Pray when you work. Pray when you drive. Pray when you're at the shop. Pray when you have a spare moment. Pray at lunchtime. Pray before. Pray in your car. All that. Do it. Do it. Do it. There's no need to opt out of this and say, well, that's not for me. It's for all of us. Calvin later in the 16th century would say, for there is not an emotion of which one can be conscious that is not represented in the Psalms as in a mirror. This is Calvin's way of saying, look, you want to know what's going on in your own heart and your own soul? Start to pray the Psalms. You're going to discover something there. You're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was there. I do want to rain down curses on my enemies. (laughs) And so so today, today, we're going to take one theme and we're going to work through this over the next few weeks. Just a quick survey of the themes of the Psalms. And today is the language of petition and protest. And as we move through, we'll cover different ones of these contours, if you will, of the Psalms. Psalm 61 is where we're going to look this morning. If you've got your Bible, turn there to Psalm 61, verses 1 through 3. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. The psalmist is asking for something. And he's asking for God to hear, to listen, to pay attention. When you look at some of the the commentaries that talk about the prayers in the psalms, a lot of what the prayers are are complaints. Their requests, their petitions, their complaints. And maybe at first the question is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought the book of Psalms literally means the book of praise. So how is petition a part of praise? In our mind, we want to categorize things. Well, well, hey, listen, this is praise. This is petition, right? But the whole book of praise includes petitions. Why? Because of whom it is directed toward. The person that you are making your request of, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in the world. So for the psalmist, in the world that the psalmist lived in, I want to say three things about petition and protest. First is this. Petition for them was a way of affirming God's sovereignty. It was a way of saying, God, you have absolute power over the universe. God, you are the king over all. God, you are sovereign By them taking their complaint or their request up to him, they were basically affirming that he's the only one who could do something about this. 
Have you, have you ever called customer service? <laughs> have you ever been put through to someone that, bless them, were just working at a call center and they really didn't have the power to change anything on your Comcast plan? <laughs> have you ever had that experience? You know, and after a while, maybe you're like, oh, you know, I just, could I, I don't mean to be rude, but could I talk to your manager, please? And what you're saying is, I need to talk to someone who's got the power. <laughs> And the psalmist, they're saying, look, we're taking our request not to Facebook, not to my friends. I'm not just venting here. I'm taking my petition to the only person who has the power. I'm going all the way up the chain of command. Petition is a way of affirming God's sovereignty. There are a number of Hebrew prayers that begin with these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. And then they go on and say, so would you bless our bread? Or would you purify this? Or would you? There's so many of these, these Hebrew prayers that begin that way. Why? Because they're basically saying, look, before we even make a request, I want you to know that I'm doing this because I believe the Lord, our God, is King of the universe. King of the universe. So petition is a way of affirming God's sovereignty, but there's more. Petition is also a way of affirming God's faithfulness. Because let's say you had a person who had absolute power but was completely unfaithful. Actually, that's an abusive marriage. Someone who has power but no faithfulness. You say, oh, wait a minute. This person's trying to control everything about the home, and about, but he doesn't, he's not actually faithful. He doesn't actually keep his promises. He's erratic. And so when you imagine a God who is only sovereign but not also faithful, you don't yet have the picture that the psalmist had. But petition was their way of affirming God's faithfulness. They're saying, God, you're not just in control. You're actually faithful. You keep your promises. The covenant reality was the world in which the psalmist lived. It's impossible to miss that. Now, covenant, let's just take a, a couple seconds here and talk about it. Because we're not quite sure this, this, this word. We think of contract, we think of negotiations, we think of agreements, we think of neighborhood covenants, covenants. somebody's taking your dues every month for something, we don't know what they do, right? But in the ancient Near East, a covenant worked like this, a stronger party would come to a weaker party and say, I will protect you, I will do these kinds of things, and we just want you to offer us your allegiance. More or less, ancient Near East covenants worked like that. And so this covenant that Yahweh makes with Old Testament Israel is kind of like that, where this God, the king of the universe, is saying, I've chosen you out of all, and I'm making this covenant with you. I'll protect, I'll provide, I'll bless. I just want you to be faithful. And so the psalmist prays out of that covenant reality. They're affirming God's faithfulness. Think about it even outside the Psalms. Think about Abraham. Remember when Abraham is appealing to God not to destroy Sodom, and he starts to say, God, what if there's how many, what if there's this many righteous, what if there's this, he's appealing to God's faithfulness. He's saying, God, you're looking for a people, right? What if there's this many people? Is that enough? What about this many people? What? And he's basically saying, you're faithful, so I'm going to appeal to that faithfulness. Moses would do the same thing a few generations later, right? And he'd say, listen, God, if you wipe out the very people that you've saved, that's kind of not, not going to look very good for you. 
You've kind of built your reputation in being the faithful God. If you do that, this is going to be a PR nightmare. (laughs) And he appeals to God's faithfulness. Do you know, there is a petition, a kind of petition that is so raw, it actually slides over into protest. There is a way of making a request of God that is so raw, so charged with emotion, that it's actually stronger than simply a request. It's actually a protest. Listen to this in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Actually, Psalm 10 goes on and he says, look, there are these people that hide in the bushes and they jump on the weak and the vulnerable. They prey on those who can't defend themselves. Come on, God. Why? How long will you let this go on? What are they doing? They're not just appealing to God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness, but they're actually also appealing to his goodness. Protest is a way of affirming God's goodness. Again, if we had an individual who was all-powerful and always kept his promises but was not actually good, you would have a tyrant. You would have a dictator, a person who has all the power and always did what they said they were going to do, but but what they said they were going to do was not necessarily good. That's still not the picture of God in the scripture. Does that make sense? You'd have a person who was in charge and who always kept their word, but it wasn't actually good. The psalmists are somehow able to hold these three things in tension. God, you're sovereign. God, you're faithful. And God, you're good. And look, I don't always see fully what goodness is, but I know I see it at least in part. Can I say to you that sometimes... There's something that rises up in us when we see something that happens in the world and we think, God, I know that in your sovereignty you've allowed this, but this isn't good. And sometimes what, we're, what we think we're supposed to believe is, well, brother, sister, you just don't know what good means. So maybe to God this cancer is good. Maybe to God genocide is, oh, you know. And everything in you is like, no. The psalmist didn't have a version of sovereignty that didn't allow them to call evil, evil. Let me say it again. The psalmist did not have a version of sovereignty that prevented them from calling evil, evil. They believed he was sovereign. They believed he was faithful. But they also believed he was good. And so every time they protest and they say, God, do you see it? Innocent kids. God, do you see it? They're appealing to God in a way that affirms his goodness. They're saying, God, surely this is evil. Surely this is not right. This cannot be. In the same way, this is how we pray. We need not sort of develop this kind of passive view of the sovereignty of God that kind of slides into fatalisms. Well, que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. It's supposed to be. In prayer, there is the dynamic nature of saying, I know you're sovereign, and I know you're faithful, and I know you're good, and I know this, this moment, this event, this thing, this is not good. And actually, it's that belief in God's goodness that allows us to pray with hope. Because we know it's not the end of the story. 
We know it's not always going to be this way. Think of it in the New Testament. The picture is the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. At the cross, you saw the pinnacle of human evil. The Son of God comes to earth and religious powers and political powers and all of these things collude together to crucify the Son of God. The worst day in history, the greatest evil of all evils, the day Jesus was crucified. And yet, the goodness of God caused there to be more to the story. And so three days later on Easter, God raised Jesus from the dead. In the New Testament, we were able to say, this, no, no, this is not good. But this is not all there is. The psalmists kind of have this little sense in them, in the way they pray. There's something in them that says, I, I want to say to you, God, you're sovereign, you're faithful, and you're good, so it's okay for me to say, this, this doesn't look like you. This is not good. But I know because you're good, it's not always going to be this way. So I'm going to keep praying, how long, Lord? How long, Lord? How long, Lord? Come on, Lord. Come on, Lord. Come on. How does this work for us? How does petition and protest work for us? What does it look like in our lives? Several years ago when our two older girls were uh, quite a bit younger, we were watching uh, this thing, I think it was like Planet Earth or one of those documentary things, you know, and, and um, the cheetah was chasing a pack of antelope or something like that on the Serengeti. And you know how the voiceover is very dramatic, you know, the cheetah is trying to isolate a young antelope from the pack. You know, he's preying on the young. And the music kind of builds up, and my, my girls are like kind of getting a little freaked out, which I probably shouldn't have showed it to them. And, um, and sweet Sophia, our oldest, was like, Dad, we got to pray that God will protect this antelope. <laughs> and I don't know, in that moment, should I explain that this was a already recorded and the way that time space continues the way it works but before I could say anything her younger sister Nora says Sophia sometimes it doesn't work <laughs> and so there I am dealing with the problem of evil with my two young kids <laughs> but man isn't that the, the way it is sometimes like, yeah, yeah, Glenn, all this stuff about petitioning God, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes it doesn't work. Right. That's true. Not in the way we want. I was thinking earlier this week of the times that I have petitioned God like never before. What were the times that I prayed like never before? One of those moments was about seven years ago. Some of our closest friends were expecting their fourth child, and they had three boys, and this was a girl, and they were so thrilled. And about seven months into the pregnancy, they got this devastating news that something had gone wrong, and we were petitioning God. We were praying. We had a prayer meeting at our house. I wrote a song for them, praying in tears. I, I, was, I would be driving around town in my car, just sobbing and praying, saying, come on, God. And then the time came, and we went to the hospital with them, stayed overnight with them, and were by their side shortly after they delivered a stillborn. Devastating. 
And petition in those moments quickly turns into protest. What? Come on, God. What? And it's quite right for petition to slide into protest. But what normally happens for us then is for protest to then turn into silence. And then we just stop. Like, God, I I mean, I don't even know. I mean, why? Why? Why should I pray? Why should I ask? Why should I bring? I I mean, eh. And you just get quiet. You remember the story I've told a few times of Russell Moore in his book, Adopted for Life. I think he's talking about going to this orphanage to pick up his sons for the first time. And the most eerie thing about the orphanage is the sound of silence. When babies stop crying because they don't believe anybody cares. I wonder if our Father in Heaven feels the same way, that the most eerie sound from the church is the sound of silence. No more prayer. No more petition. No more protests. Because we just kind of stop believing. Like, I don't know, God. Whatever. Prayer. Yeah. It hurts. I don't want to do this. So what's the point? Why do we do this? Why do we do this if not to get what we want? Why petition? Why protest? Why engage with God in prayer if not to make it happen? If there's no way to actually manipulate God, if there's no way to sort of give enough or sow enough seed or have enough faith or summon the elders or use enough oil, if there's no formula for making it happen, then why, 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 why pray? Why? Maybe our insight comes from the psalmist. I did a study this week looking at all of the Hebrew verbs in the psalms. The most used Hebrew verb is one that you would expect, the the verb for to do or to make, sort of a normal verb. The second most used verb is the the Hebrew verb form of the verb to be, which great is, I mean, even from English, we know that's going to be a popular verb. But the third most used verb in the psalms occurs 101 times is the verb roeh, to see. To see. And sometimes the psalmist is saying, I want others to see your goodness. Sometimes they're saying, God, I want to see you. But a lot of the time they're saying, God, I need you to see me. God, I need you to see me. Look upon me. Turn your face upon me. God, would you look? And this word roe is much richer than our English word for just see or look or notice. It actually carries with it the sense of have regard for, have concern for, pay attention to. This verb roe is where the word yire comes from. You know, that word that Abraham uses when he names God after the Abraham and Isaac thing. He says, you are the Lord who sees. Yahweh Yireh. Maybe that doesn't sound familiar to you because most of us are familiar with the corrupted form of Hebrew where the wise became J's and so we called it Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. In Hebrew, it's actually Yahweh Yireh, the God who sees. Not crassly, the God who gives me what I want, but profoundly, richly, the God who sees. The covenant God who sees me.
When the psalmists are petitioning, they're saying, Adonai Eloheinu, Lord our God, King of the universe, see me. Turn your face to me. Listen to Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth, shining, radiating. Those are all Hebrew idioms for God's attention, his face being towards you. Verse 14 of Psalm 80. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Listen to all those cognate verbs. Turn, look, see, have regard. This is the psalmist's way of saying, God, would you please see me? Why petition and protest? Because that's how relationships work. Petition and protests are proof of the relationship. Every relationship requires that two people are truly seeing one another, truly being moved by one another, truly saying, okay, look, 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 I want you to see me, and I need you to, and I want to see you. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a little book called The Reflections on the Psalms. And Lewis, as an academic scholar, was well-versed in medieval and Renaissance literature. That was where he was really astounding uh, that, that you know, most of us, myself included, don't know too much about. But Lewis was also classically educated, so he was reading Greek mythologies in Greek as a young uh, elementary-age boy. This, that was his education. And Lewis remarks, he says, look, What jumps off the page to me about the Psalms is they are so different from the world of the Greek mythologies. You see, in the Greek mythologies, the events of the gods spill over onto earth. The gods are having a fight, and so, whoa, there's an earthquake on earth. Zeus gets mad, whoa, there's lightning. In Greek mythology, it's the gods and their emotions that spill over onto earth. But he says, Lewis says, in the Psalms, it's the reverse. It's the affairs of humanity that move God. That when we are struggling, God weeps. When we are, when enemies oppress, God gets mad. I think it's a profound observation. I don't know where the idea in theology developed that God is the unmoved mover, but it didn't come from the Psalms. It probably came from Plato, but it didn't come from the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, God is not an unmoved mover. In the Psalms, God is the most moved mover. He is most deeply moved by the human condition. In the Psalms, is a God who says, Oh, I suffer with you. In the Psalms is a God, even his anger is is but a witness of his love. Even his anger is a witness of his love. And so we see a God with full full of passion. When When you look at the theories of personhood, they say that in order for there to be relationship, you must have two fully acknowledged persons. And what theories of personhood tell us, they call it subject-subject instead of subject-object. When in a relationship, when one person is the subject and the other person is the object, 
They want you to be moved by them. Listen to me, pay attention to me. But they're never willing to be moved by the other. That's a dysfunctional relationship. In theories of personhood, they say in order for healthy relationships, you've got to have two fully acknowledged persons where each are being moved by the other. Both are subjects. They're both equally moved and, and they cause the other to be moved. Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher, wrote a book called I and Thou. And he talks about relationships needing to be between the two persons. Not an I and an it. Not an it and a thou, but an I and a thou. And so there's got to be two of us in this. Man, the Psalms show this. The dynamic relationship between the two. Petition and protest are actually proof of the relationship. To keep that relationship theme and go a little bit deeper, petition and protest are actually pathways to intimacy. They're actually pathways into intimacy. When I do premarital, I talk about, I use the, the, the picture sometimes of, of us being like the, having these boxes in our hearts of, of deep longings and deep fears and not knowing how to say that to one another, but that part of growing in a relationship is learning to make requests of one another based on those deep longings and even sometimes based on those fears to say, look, I have this terrible fear that I'm never going to be enough for you. I, if, if you. Could you once in a while tell me the w- ways that you're grateful for, oh, oh, oh my goodness, I wasn't even, yes, sure, I'll do that. And so the request, the petition becomes a pathway to intimacy. But we also talk about how sometimes the conflict in a relationship can be a pathway to intimacy. Now, not every fight leads to intimacy. (laughs) There's a way of fighting in a way that actually destroys it. But there is a way of letting conflict say, you know why that got me so riled up? You know why I got so... I think it's because actually deep down inside I long for this and I'm afraid of this. And so all of a sudden that conflict became a way of seeing the other person. All of a sudden you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Never mind the fight. Let's not have a fight about the fight. Let's go deeper. I want you to see me. And so that protest, that kind, it became a pathway. It becomes a pathway into intimacy. This is a little bit a shadow of what it's like with God. That our petition and our protest become ways of letting God see you. And letting you see him. Letting you see him as Yahweh Yireh, the God who sees. When I think about the characters in the scripture, and I think about the person who was maybe the ultimate petitioner and certainly the ultimate protester, I think of Job. I think of Job pre all of his trouble being the guy. Remember it says, I would always pray after every evening. I would pray, oh God, please forgive my kids for who knows what they did tonight. You know, He's petitioning God. He's like the master at, at petitioning. And then after the trouble, he becomes a very eloquent protester. God, what is going on? Come on. And his friends are like, Joe, I just think you just kind of give it up, man. Like just kind of, you know, just it's okay. And he's like, no, it's precisely because I believe in God's sovereignty and faithfulness and goodness. That's why I'm going to keep protesting. God, what is going on? 
And sometimes people say that the, the pinnacle of the book of Job is how Satan came to God and said, let me test it. You know, that's in the beginning of the book. But you know how we know that's not the point of the book of Job? Because Satan's character doesn't appear again at the end of the story. Look, if that was the point of the story, then where's the resolve to that thread, right? This is, this is like story writing, storytelling 101. Satan comes to the Lord. Job doesn't serve you for anything. Let, let me test him. God's just fine. The resolution should be Satan coming back to God and saying, you win, I lose. You're right. Doesn't happen. Someone else says, oh, well, the, the resolution of the book of Job is that Job gets everything restored to him. That's also not true. It's almost kind of, if you, you know, you study storytelling, there's like a peak of the, of the story, and then it kind of curves down. It's really at the tail end of the book that's like, oh, and by the way, Job had more, you know, kids and, you know, all that stuff. And you're like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Do you know what I think is the pinnacle of the story and therefore the point of the story? It's somewhere around chapter 40, 41, 42. It's when God answers Job. The whole book, everybody's talking. Job's wife talks in chapter 2. Just curse God and die. He says, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Don't quote that one at home. <laughs> Job's friends, they're quiet. Then they're talking long speeches. Then Job goes on. It's just lots of blah, 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 long dialogue. And finally, the most important character in the story speaks. God speaks. And God begins to say to Job, hey, 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 Job, where were you when I, da, 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 da. And where were you when I tamed Leviathan? Where were you when I told the waves of the sea thus far and no more? Where were you when I called the stars? And Job is humbled by this speech. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases Job's answer in Job 42. He says, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. There's his acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? Here's Job's confession. I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. Wow. You told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. And here's the phrase that rocked me when I read it in this paraphrased translation years ago. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. But now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again, I promise. I'll never again live on the crusts of hearsay crumbs of rumor. This is Job saying, I get it. The reward for petition and protest is not getting what you want. The reward for petition and protest is relationship, is intimacy with God. The reward for engaging in prayer, even in petition and even in protest, is not that I figured out a way to get answers or to get what I want. No, the reward is God himself. The reward is that you know him and he knows you. Wrestling with God always involves contact. It's firsthand. It's firsthand. Maybe for some of us today, we're not sure 
what we'll find if we engage God in prayer. What if he turns his face to me and it's angry? What if he doesn't turn his face to me? We have the advantage of reading the Psalms as Christians, which means we know where the story goes. And what we see in Jesus is that God didn't just turn his face toward us. God came and dwelt among us. In Jesus, God is weeping with us. Think about Jesus' prayer in the garden where his petition is, Father, if there's any way for this cup to be removed, let it pass. And Jesus prayed a petition that was not granted. And so in all of your unanswered prayers, there is Jesus with you. And Jesus on the cross voices protest in the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me in the depths of your own protest before God? There is Jesus praying with you. There is Jesus praying as you. And yet, as Christians, we know it wasn't the end of the story. Gethsemane, Golgotha, this was not where it ended. It ends with an empty tomb. And so we know that Jesus rose. Jesus ascended. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, now not simply praying as us and with us, but praying for us. For us. Now when you pray in the depths of your petition and in the depths of your protest, the one who has tasted glory as the firstborn among all of his brothers is praying for you. And one day you'll taste it too. One day you'll get there too. It will not always be this way. And so for now, we pray. We pray. Why? Because we found a way to move heaven and earth? No. Because we found a way to be near the God of heaven and earth. Amen?